and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Jernardin Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview with Graham Priest, who is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Hi, Graham. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me along. Thanks for coming on the show. We're going to be talking about Buddhist logic, mm-hmm. or logic and Buddhist logic, because these are two areas you've worked in. Uh, you're very well known for your work in contemporary logic, and during your career, you turned your attention to the resources that Buddhism has to offer in logic. Right. And I was wondering if you could start by just telling us why you got interested in Buddhist logic. Okay, so um, a bit of autobiography. So my training was as a mathematician, so my doctorate's in mathematics, but um, by the time I finished my doctorate, I knew that philosophy was an awful lot more fun than mathematics for me. Okay? <laughs> so uh, I was very fortunate to be offered a job in a philosophy department, but I knew virtually no philosophy. So I've spent a lot of my career teaching myself philosophy, which has been great fun. So I guess I'd been around as an academic for something like... 20 years, and I'd learned a lot of Western philosophy in that time. I hadn't really come across much Eastern philosophy just because in the Western Academy, no one really knows much about it. But I had a stroke of uh, very good luck. I met uh, someone who's since become a very close friend, a guy called Jay Garfield. At that time, uh, Jay was professor in Tasmania, and I was professor in Brisbane. Okay, they're quite a long way apart, but <laughs> Australia's relatively small in terms of, yeah. you know, the philosophical community. So I got to know Jay well. And uh, Jay uh, was also trained as a Western analytic philosopher, but he also has moved into uh, the Asian traditions as well. And then Jay knew a lot about the Asian traditions. Jay's kind of amazing because uh, he, he didn't he taught himself Tibetan, <laughs> or learnt Tibetan anyway, and then he made uh, one of the best translations of the Mulamadhyamaka Karaka, which is probably the most important and famous book or text written by Nagarjuna, 2nd century, 1st century ADE. In India, no one knows the exact dates, but it's one of the most important philosophical texts in Buddhism. Yeah, I just read his translation, actually, okay. to write some other right. of these scripts. Yeah. Well, Jay had just finished that translation, and I would, had just finished my own book on Beyond the Limits of Thought. And we started to chat about things, and I realized that many of the things he was engaged in were so fascinating and, and related to a number of the things that I was engaged with. So it was talking to Jay that uh, I came to realize that I knew at best half the world's philosophy, the, the sort of Europe, European derived stuff. So I knew nothing about China, I knew nothing about India, but Jay showed me that uh, there was so much more that was interesting in philosophy. So then I made a point of uh, teaching myself, I try to teach myself that as well. Uh, so, I mean, you do that by talking to people who know, by teaching. Teaching is a great way of learning um, because you, you can't teach it unless you get your head around it to a certain extent first. Podcasting is also actually a great I technique. I understand entirely. I recommend it. Yeah. Um, and I went to study in India and I've uh, studied in Japan. So over the last 20 years or so, I guess, I've... I've learnt quite a lot about certain aspects of Asian philosophy. So that's how I got into this stuff. And was it really the resonance between technical issues you were working on in logic and the Buddhist tradition, or was it more, oh, well, I don't know about this and I should, just generally speaking? 
There's certainly a resonance with illogical issues. We can talk about that in a minute. But it wasn't it wasn't just that. Um, I think there are so many fascinating philosophical ideas that come out of China and India and Tibet and Japan and Korea. And even without the, any logic connection, I would have found those ideas fascinating. Um, the views about the nature of reality, the ethics, the political philosophy. I mean, th- these are just fascinating ideas, even without the logic connection. Right. So you weren't just mining the Buddhist tradition for material to use in logic. No, not at all. Just not looking all. for whatever you would find interesting. Sure. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've learned lots of Western philosophy, and uh, some of that's got something to do with logic, some of it hasn't. But I, I, I find philosophy fascinating just as it's philosophy. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of your work in logic, I mean, not Buddhist logic, but logic, generally speaking, has been about what's sometimes called non-classical mm-hmm. logic. And in fact, uh, some of the work that you and also Jay Garfield have contributed on Buddhism suggests that Buddhist logic is non-classical logic. And not only because it developed independently of classical logic, but because it uh, makes some of the same technical moves, perhaps we could say. And so I was wondering whether you could maybe tell us, before we get into the Buddhist material, what non-classical logic is and what some of the issues are that arise. Okay. A little bit of history of Western logic. Classical logic is something of a misnomer because it has absolutely nothing to do with the great classical civilizations of the West, like Egypt and Greece and uh, Rome. Classical logic essentially was invented at the end of the 19th century. And the most important important person here was Gottlob Frege, who I think did not get the credit he deserved initially. So when these new ideas were taken up in Europe and other European-derived countries like North America and Australia, the people who got the credit were, in the first instance, people like Russell, sometimes Wittgenstein. And it wasn't really till the mid-50s that people recognised how much was owed to Frege. Even though Russell at least made it quite clear that he was drawing on Frege, didn't he? Oh, yes. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't hide this. But people read... Principia, that's Russell's 1910 book, where he deployed what was essentially something like Frege logic. Um, So people read that, and um, they didn't go back and read Frege. One reason they didn't was because Frege's notation is terrible. It's really hard to read, whereas Russell's uh, symbolism was much more familiar to mathematicians. Anyway, the point was that classical logic is an invention of the late 19th century, I don't know who coined the term classical logic, but it's a masterstroke of propaganda because <laughs> it makes you think how cool it is. It's been around since ancient Greece. No, this is just not true. So logic has developed in the West for two and a half thousand years. And logic, as modern logicians understand it, is a theory about what follows from what. So if I give you certain things, claims that I make, you know, what can I infer from that? That's what logic deals with. And different Theories of that have been proposed since ancient Greece through the the great medieval period into the end of the 19th, 20th, 21st century. So uh, logic is a very dynamic subject which has evolved over a long period of time. Unfortunately, the way that logic is taught nowadays is anything but historical. So you're just given a logic book and you're told this is logic. And it's 
probably some form of classical logic. So you can get the impression that this has, you know, dropped from the sky. Or, you know, maybe some kind of Moses has brought it down from Mount Sinai, you know, and you just learn the tablets. It's, it's more like learning physics nowadays than it is like learning, say, ethics. Yeah, right? except that most physicists or most people who learn physics know that physics has a history. Most logic students don't know that logic has a history. It's taught very uh, ahistorically. Okay, that's a bit of a gripe. Okay, <laughs> set that aside. So it's important to see that, that classical logic is a, is a product of its time, and it was a fantastic advance in logic. Uh, classical logic was so much more powerful than anything that had preceded it that it soon became, in 20 or 30 years, fairly orthodox. And there are many great investigations of it by brilliant mathematicians such as Hilbert and, of course, Gödel. Uh, so Hilbert's working in Göttingen in the 1920s, 1910. Uh, Gödel is working in Vienna in 1920s, 1930s, before he goes to the US and works in Princeton. So th these are great logicians. And what they were able to do was uh, develop the logic that had been invented by people like Frege and uh, show so much of its wealth. And philosophers caught on uh, and they thought, hey, you know, we've got this great new philosophical tool. Let's do everything we can with it. So the next 30 years of logic, uh, philosophy from about 1920 to 1960 is uh, philosophers who want to apply logic, take logic as the tool and uh, try to apply it to philosophy of science, philosophy of language, thinking, you know, finally, we've got logic right. Now we can go about applying it. This is sort of the heyday of analytic philosophy. You might yeah, say. that's probably true. Um, or certainly you have developments like logical positivism. Yeah, it's very much connected with logical logic. positivism, uh, logical empiricism in the United States. But when you start to use a tool, one thing that you quickly discover is its limitations. Well, quickly, it takes 40, 50 years in this case. <laughs> and... It, it's clear that classical logic has limitations. Now, everyone is all, all, logic, all logicians are aware of this. You might think that there are ways of work of a workaround of the limitations, okay? But you might come to think that there are better ways of approaching logic that you don't need a workaround. What you need is a kind of revamping of logic. So, what we've seen, especially in the last forty years, I guess, but actually it goes back way before that is people working on systems of logic which are now called non-classical logic. So these are logics which deviate from classical logic in some way or other. And roughly speaking, deviant logics and non-classical logics fall into two kinds. The ones that think that they're the expressive resources of classical logic are too too limited. So you add extra expressive machinery. And the uh, sort of paradigm example of that is modal logic, where you add uh, a logic to deal with things, uh, claims about possibility, necessity, and so on. And in the 20th century, that goes back to C.I. Lewis, who's working in the 1920s. But then there are people who say, no, classical logic gets it wrong in a much more profound way. Uh, there are just things about logical, there are just things about classical logic which are just wrong. And that movement starts very early. So probably the first person to work on this area was uh, the, the Dutch mathematician Brouwer, who's working on something called intuitionist logic, really about 1910, so about the same time as Principia Mathematica. And then by about the 1920s, you get another Dutch mathematician, Arend Heiting, producing intuitionist logic, which is says, hey, classical logic is wrong. So I won't go into all the differences because they get technical, but 
In classical logic, there's a principle called the principle of excluded middle. So every statement is either true or false. And what intuitionists did was say, no, no, that's not true. Uh, there are some things which are neither true nor false. So they construct a system of logic uh, in which that is not a logical truth. Um, so for every A, A or it's not the case that A is just not true. So the, the origins of non-classical logic really go back very close to the origins of classical logic, except no one paid much attention to them. Just because classical logic was such a fabulous theory, it's so powerful, it did such a good job of so many things, people didn't worry about the kind of the places where it didn't seem to fit so well. But by about the 1960s, 1970s, then lots of logicians started to feel, well, uh, we shouldn't ignore these non-classical systems because maybe that, they can actually do uh, a lot better job of some areas where classical logic seems to it's like a pair of shoes that bite you know you can live with the biting shoes for a while but after a while you think well maybe i can do better with a new pair of shoes does the classical logician think that this idea that uh, a statement could be neither true nor false i mean in a way that's an obvious observation that we actually talked about it in the nagarjuna episodes mm. that for example category mistakes right like, how heavy is the color blue? This kind of yeah. question. I mean, there's no there's no good answer to that, and the reason is because the question makes a false assumption, namely that colors have weight. Yeah. But would, couldn't a classical logician say, "Well, I don't need this other absolutely. truth value because if I'm just precise enough and I avoid category uh, mistakes?" Uh, absolutely. So, what what, what what some logicians have suggested that category mistakes require a non-classical logic where where you have the value true, the value false, and then some value meaning a category mistake or something like this. Um, what many classical logicians will tell you about that is, well, we're assuming that uh, we're using a language where all the category mistakes have been factored out in the first place, so we can just ignore those. Um, so I, I don't think that's been a particularly tough challenge for classical logic. Uh, there are many tougher challenges. So uh, the one of the earliest challenges was uh, intuitionism. And this was driven by developments in the philosophy of mathematics. So, so Brouwer said, look, what's truth in mathematics? So truth in physics is kind of, well, you know, there's a real world out there. What's true and what's false? It doesn't really depend on us. That's contentious for you, of course. But, but certainly truth about the, the natural world is fixed because, hey, the natural world is out there. What about mathematics? Uh, okay, you can think that the mathematical world is out there, like the natural world, and some philosophers do, but some think that, hey, that's just a kind of mysticism. Okay, so if mathematical truth is not sort of constituted by reality that's out there, what does constitute mathematical truth? And Brower said, well, you know, what constitutes mathematical truth is provability. So to be true in mathematics is to be provable. Right. Now, there are lots of places in mathematics where you can't prove something. You can't prove A, for example, and you can't prove its negation. You can't prove that it's true. You can't prove that it's false. And in these cases, said Brower, okay, you cannot apply the principle excluded middle, at least until you've got a proof of one of these guys. Can't you even sometimes prove that you can't prove either A or its converse? You can certainly prove that uh, there are certain systems of logic where some things can either be proved or refuted. So this is a, a standard interpretation of one of the great theorems of Gödel, or the theorems of Great Gödel. But 
Brow was talking about not provability with respect to some system or other. He was talking about provability, period. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Brow himself had a very jaundiced view of formal systems. He thought that proof is about mental constructions which may not be able to be captured in any one given formal system. So this is one of the early challenges to classical logic, uh, and it's, um, it depends on a, a sort of verificationist theory of truth. And of course, there's a lot to argue about there, but it, it's an illustration of one of the reasons that logicians have come to, to challenge uh, classical logic. I mean, classical logic was pretty, very much orthodox in the, uh, up to about the 1960s. Then a number of people started to worry about it. I think it's probably fair to say that it's still the orthodox view especially in philosophy. But I think that uh, logic's in a very exciting state at the moment because a lot of logicians have come to realise there are all kinds of ways in which we may not have got it right and we really need to think about these things very carefully. So even if there is an orthodoxy, then we're not as sure that, we, that the orthodox is right as we were, say, 50 years ago. So it's a very exciting time. Maybe now we can turn to the Buddhists then, mm. uh, which obviously is the most interesting thing from the point of view of this podcast series. And, I mean, from what you've said, it's obvious that the Buddhists weren't operating with classical logic, Surely. at least unless they independently discovered Phrygian logic, which is unlikely. Which they didn't. Yeah. And uh, I guess maybe one question that arises before I ask you about parallels between contemporary work in non-classical logic and Buddhist ancient Buddhist logic. To what extent do you think it's fair to ascribe to ancient Buddhist thinkers a uh, logic, because clearly they weren't doing the same kinds of things that, say, Russell is doing in the Prohibia. That That's a good question. They certainly weren't doing anything that you might recognize as contemporary formal logic. Things are much more complicated and nuanced than that. First of all, when we talk about the great Buddhist logicians like Dignaga and Dharmakirti, you wouldn't really want to call them logicians in the modern sense. They use the word logic to mean something like epistemology. So these guys are particularly concerned with epistemology. And epistemology is concerned with sources of knowledge. So what are the sources of knowledge? Uh, perception, testimony, inference. So you need to have a story to tell about those things. Uh, and so they do engage with inference. That's something that you know, is part of contemporary logic. But they didn't have particularly sophisticated theories. So, so Dignaga Dharmakirti formulate sort of a formal logic, which is a bit like Aristotelian syllogistic, but it's different. But it's about that kind of level of power, maybe less powerful. So I don't think that's really where the interest lies. The epistemology is really interesting, but I don't think that if you look at their, their, their theories of inference, they're going to be particularly exciting for a contemporary logician. I think that's where the interest lies. Uh, the interest lies elsewhere, and it's back a lot further. It's very hard to draw the line between logic and metaphysics in some sense, especially in the old positivist era. People thought that logic was metaphysically neutral. That, I think, is almost certain. Well, that's certainly false, and I think <laughs> most philosophers would now agree with that. I mean, it, just think for a moment about my description about intuitionist logic. That's obviously not metaphysically neutral because it, it's to do with, you know, reality, physical and mathematical. And you don't have to sort of probe most systems of logic very hard to see that they've got metaphysical underpinnings. So one of the things about the people who worried about 
things which you might want to call logic are interesting because they just have very, very different metaphysical underpinnings. So it, it's not in the epistemology that you find things which are interesting for modern logician, it's in the metaphysics. Okay, so there are thinkers uh, in ancient India who have metaphysical pictures which are very different from most contemporary Western metaphysical pictures. Uh, the Buddhists and the Jains do. And uh, in Buddhism, you get a view called the Chaturshkoti, literally means four corners. What the four corners are, are possible answers to a question. Uh, so, for example, at one point someone asks the Buddha, well, you know, what happens to someone who's enlightened after they die? Do you think they exist? Do you think they don't exist? Do you think they both do and don't exist? Do you think they neither exist nor don't exist? This is what, by the way, we were calling the tetralemma in earlier That's episodes. exactly the tetralemma. Okay. Now, the Buddha refuses to answer yes to any of those questions. That's another story. What's clear is that these guys think that um, those four answers are all on the cards. Now, their picture of reality allows for those four possibilities, as it were. Now, in the West at least until recent times, only two of those are on the cards. Yes and no. You can't have both, you can't have neither. Well, it's actually a bit more complicated than that because sometimes Aristotle does suggest neither about the future. But generally speaking, the only two main answers that have been on the cards are yes and no. Whereas, at least for the Chachacotti, you've the Tetralemma, uh, you've got four answers on the cards. Now, these guys never work that up into the rigor of modern logical system. We know exactly how to do that now because of developments in contemporary non-classical logic, where there are logics where you have exactly these four possibilities, and we know how exactly to handle these things. So that's the Buddhists. Now, they're the Jains as well. The Jains are even cooler because <laughs> for the Buddhists, at least the Buddhists at that time, there are four possibilities. The Jains have seven why seven, I hear you asking. <laughs> well, it's because it's two to the three minus one. <laughs> okay. okay, we can, I'll talk about that if you want, but we don't need to. So, but the Jains have this uh, Saptabangi, the seven answers, and um, that's wrapped up with the metaphysics of aspects. So the Jains think that reality has many different aspects and things can have be you know holding one aspect and not another so you have to take into account all these aspects and okay it's a long story but that's how you get seven can i actually go back to the what you said about the tetralemma mm. because i think maybe the easiest way uh to see, get us to see why this might be a different way of thinking about logic would be to focus on the third answer because okay. we already talked before about the neither answer right yes. so like it could be a category mistake yeah. uh, maybe it's neither provable that it's true nor that it's false and if truth is provability then hey you have your neither answer right. and so it's not that hard i think to get your mind around how a meaningful proposition could be neither true nor false mm -hmm. you gave another example just now aristotle says well maybe uh, things in the future that aren't yet decided. Right. If you say something will happen, it, that might be neither true nor false. Like a sea battle will happen tomorrow. But what about both? Yeah. So can you give me an example of why it would be useful to think about that a meaningful proposition could be both true and false? Okay. So a little bit of history again. 
what we're talking about is the principle of non-contradiction, which says, essentially, it rules out the third cotty. Okay, uh, some, something can't be both true and false. Um, and this has been high orthodoxy in Western logic philosophy since Aristotle, much more so than the principle of excluded middle, which is the other thing we talked about. Aristotle defends the principle of non-contradiction in the metaphysics, uh, and he has a, a, a long string of arguments in defense of the principle. And most modern commentators think these arguments really don't work. They're, they're, for a start, they're not very clear. Most of them, obviously, well, a number of them clearly beg the question. But Aristotle is attacking certain people. He tells us who they are. He tells us he's attacking Heraclitus, Protagoras. So he thinks that there's an issue to be fought here, and so he fights it. And even though the argument's actually not very good, they kind of secured the principle of non-contradiction, a, a place of high orthodoxy in the history of Western philosophy. So much so that virtually nobody has even bothered to defend the view at any length since Aristotle, as far as I know. So virtually every philosopher in the West has accepted the principle of law and contradiction, at least until recent times. Now, there is an important exception, and that's Hegel. So, you know, interpreting Hegel is a, it's a dangerous business. You haven't probably got Hegel yet in no, the I'm, series. It's something I'm looking forward to <laughs> yeah, with some okay. trepidation, actually. But, uh, look, th th there are certainly attempts to consistentize Hegel. Uh, but if you read the guy, he is... All right. The view that some contradictions are true, the modern name for that is dialethism. And a dialethia is something that's true and false. If you read Hegel with an open mind, he's, this guy's a dialethist. There's absolutely no doubt about that. For example, when in the logic he discusses motion, he says, what is it to be in motion? Well, it's not to be here over on my right at one point of time and here over on my left at another point of time, but it's to be here and not here in one and the same place at one and the same time. That's almost his exact words, but you know, it's what translates into English. So he says, motion itself realizes contradictory states of affairs. He then draws on paradoxes like Zeno's paradoxes of the arrow and so on. Um, so he, he's a big exception in the history of Western philosophy because he's a really important philosopher in the history of Western philosophy. But what, I mean, the fact that he's an exception just tells you how orthodox this principle has been because uh, there aren't many others. All right. Now, I haven't forgotten your question, but I was <laughs> just putting it in some historical context. One thing that happened around the 1960s in contemporary logic is the development of systems of logic where what fails is not the principle excluded middle, but the principle of non-contradiction. So these are logics called, which are now called paraconsistent logics. And these are contradictions which, sorry, these are systems which are logic tolerant in a certain sense. So in classical logic, once you've got a contradiction, all hell breaks loose because it's a principle of classical logic that a contradiction implies everything. So once you've got one contradiction, you've got everything. The, the defining feature of paraconsistent logic is that this is not the case. So you can have a contradiction and it's kind of uh, constrained, it's limited. And these are paraconsistent logics started to be developed in the 1960s, 1970s, and we now have a pretty good understanding of how they work. There are many of them. All right, so 
if you can have a logic that tolerates contradictions, uh, then you start to wonder, well, could some contradictions really be true? I finally get around to your question, which is, well, give me some examples. Now, uh, there are many examples. Um, maybe when you get around to 20th century logic, we can talk some more about this, but probably everyone's favourites are the paradox of self-reference. So there's a whole family of paradox of self-reference, which became really, really important in the foundations of mathematics around the turn of the century, because they turned up in the foundations of mathematics. You know, Russell in discovered one of the most famous paradoxes, somebody called Russell's Paradox, um, that crashed Frege's program. So, you know, we're not playing games here. Uh, but the oldest paradox of this kind go back to the 5th century BCE. There's a paradox called the Liar Paradox. It was invented by or discovered by the Greek thinker Eubulides. And it might sound like a party game, but it isn't because it's closely connected with all this stuff that turned up in the foundations of mathematics in the early 20th century. So the Liar Paradox is this. Suppose I say to you, uh, what I'm now telling you is false. And you ask yourself, well, is it true or is it false? Well, if it's true, well, it says it's true. It says what I'm telling is false. So if it's true, it's false. Ah, oh. okay. So suppose it's false. Well, it says that it's false. So it's true. So prima facie, the liar sentence, this sentence is false, is both true and false. So your question originally asked for an example. So this is one example that modern dialectists often give as a possible example. So paradox like this have been discussed at length ad nauseam in the three great periods of modern, uh, the three great periods of logic, ancient, medieval, and modern. And uh, as far as that paradox goes, there is still no consensus. Most people have thought there's something wrong with the argument. They've tried to explain what goes wrong with the argument. At least if you judge by consensus, there has yet been no success. Because amongst modern logicians, there's still no consensus about how you handle this. So the dialethist thought is, hey, take something like the liar paradox. Why suppose that there's something wrong with the argument? Uh, especially since we've had, it's been so difficult to explain what is wrong with it. Maybe it's what it appears to be, namely a veridical argument for something that's true. And the truth is a contradiction. So this is a contentious view, but this is one example that frequently gets appealed to uh, to explain some examples of dialethes. You know, I find it interesting that um, the Buddhists, so we originally started talking about this in the context of the tetralemma, mm. and the great uh, expert in the tetralemma and how to wield it is, of course, Nagarjuna. Mm. And he usually uses it to give four options, all of which he's going to refute, right? So if, well, for example, he says, well, here's four things you could think about motion or causation, right? So something is self-caused, it's caused by another, it's caused sure. by itself. And the interesting thing is that when he gets to the third option, he doesn't say, well, this is obviously silly because it's a contradiction. He actually gives you a, a detailed argument against it, right? Yeah. So he seems to have thought, I mean, there's obviously, as we talked about in the uh, episode on Nagarjuna's Tetralemma, there's different ways of interpreting what he was up to there. Sure. But at least they seem to lack what apparently classical logicians and a lot of other people have as a very strong intuition, which is that you can immediately rule contradictions out of course. Sure. And, and that's because Nagarjuna is picking up on the history of Buddhist, logic, Buddhist philosophy, which by that time is 700 years old. Now, the Tetralemma is canonical Buddhism. It's in the sutras. So Nagarjuna is, you know, a good Buddhist. He's not going to turn around and say, 
hey, the, the Buddha was crazy. Okay, so the Buddha, in the sort of context we just talked about, it's true that he refused to answer. Now that's going to be important for Nagarjuna as well. But the Buddha didn't... When, is, when the disciple says to Buddha, well, do you think the enlightened person after death might both exist and not exist? The Buddha doesn't say, oh, don't be silly, my dear. You know, the principle of non-contradiction rules that out. Yeah. The Buddha is prepared to countenance this. Uh, and, and Nagarjuna is just, you know, paying... He's being faithful to the tradition. Nagarjuna deploys the Chattachkoti in a very novel way. You summarised the use that the that Nagarjuna makes of this just now. Um, I don't think that's quite the right way to look at it. Okay, interpreting Nagarjuna is hard. Okay, but I think this is the right way to look at it, and I think many of my colleagues agree with this. Nagarjuna is the foundational philosopher of Madhyamaka, which is one of the two kinds of Indian Mahayana philosophy, Buddhist philosophy. And the central thought, the central metaphysical idea of uh, Madhyamaka philosophy is that everything is empty. Now, what does that mean? It most certainly does not mean non-existent. If something is empty, it's empty of something, like the glass is empty of beer. So if things are empty, what are they empty of? And the answer is, they are empty of, the Sanskrit term is, term is svabhava, literally it means self-being. You can translate it, if you like, as intrinsic nature. So the metaphysics of early Buddhism, first 500 years, held that ultimately reality is composed of, call them atoms, if you like. They're not atoms in the modern sense, but they're kind of the, the, the building blocks of reality. The word is dharmas. Uh, and these dharmas have intrinsic nature. Okay. And what happens when you get with the rise of Madhyamaka is Nagarjuna launches a severe attack on the older metaphysics. So Buddhism is not one thing. Buddhism evolves over two and a half thousand years. And this is, this is one of the turning points in Buddhist philosophy where Nagarjuna attacks the old metaphysical picture. How does the Chattrashkoti feature into his attack? Well, what many of the chapters of the Mulamadagamake Karaka do is perform a reductio on the claim that something or other has Svabhava. So he runs through all the things you might think have Svabhava and reduces those views to absurdity. So uh, the chapter you mentioned on the causation, which is the first chapter of the MMK, there's a tacit assumption that causation is Svabhavic. It has an, an intrinsic nature of its own. Now, that's not explicit in the text, but that's really what's going on. You start with this unspoken assumption that there is, that in this case, causation has Svabhava. Okay, so if there is Svabhava, there are four possibilities that something about it is either true, false, both, or neither, and that's what Nagarjuna reduces to absurdity by going through the four cases. It's actually a pretty standard reductio argument. You make an assumption and you show that in, there are various possible cases and none of those works. Now, if you do this in the West, there are only two cases to consider, true, false. But Nagarjuna is working in the context of the Chattrashkoti, so he's got four cases to consider. So that's why he runs through the four cases and, you know, he has to take account of all of them, as you pointed out. But the ultimate aim of this is to produce a reductio on the assumption that something or other has Fabhava.
That's what's going on in many of the chapters of the Mullabhadyamaka Karaka. So we've seen with the Tetra Lemma that uh, he at least considers as a viable option this both case. So it's both true and false, let's say, um, or both self-caused and not self-caused in the case we were just talking about. But of course, he rejects that. Are there other cases in ancient Buddhism where they are thinking like dialethic logicians and asserting something that's a contradiction? Okay, so in the Mulamadhyaka Karaka, Nagarjuna often runs through these four cases and he rejects all four. But what he's rejecting is actually the initial assumption made for reductio. So that in itself doesn't show there's a fifth possibility. However, there are other places in the Mulamadhyaka Karaka where he does suggest there's a fifth possibility, where he actually says that there are cases where none of these four applies. So this is not in a reductio context. It's not just a knockdown argument. This is where he's putting forward a view that there is a fifth possibility. This is where interpretations of Nagarjuna get much more contentious amongst scholars. However, the natural reading, at least for me, of the Mulambajaka Karaka in these passages is as follows. It's standard in Buddhism that there are two kinds of reality. There's a kind of ultimate reality, and then there's a kind of convention, which we're not really aware of. And there's a conventional reality, which is our Lebenswelt, which we are aware of. And in the older, older Buddhist tradition, the ultimate reality was composed by these things called dharmas. And you might well think, well, Nagarjuna attacked the views about the dharmas, so he might have done away with this view that there's an ultimate reality, but he doesn't, because you know, he's got to play, he's got to be faithful to a number of the texts, and a number of the sutras by this time are talking about ultimate reality. So what is ultimate reality for him? Well, he doesn't spread it out much, but the view that kind of evolves over the next, certainly over the next couple of hundred years, is that reality, ultimate reality is what you get when you strip away the conceptual overlay from things. So if we take a chair, for example, and we strip off its blueness, its four-leggedness, its chairedness. These are all sort of concepts we apply to it. Suppose you peel these off in a certain sense. Then what remains is what was there before any conceptual overlay. It's that that Nagarjuna thinks is ultimate reality. All right, so what's ultimate reality like? Well, obviously you can't answer it, because any answer you give is going to have to apply concepts. Can't you say it's empty? Well, that is applying a concept, because emptiness is a concept. You just cannot answer the question. Ultimate reality is ineffable. And the fifth possibility is true, false, both, neither, ineffable. That's the fifth possibility. Now we're facing some real problems, <laughs> because uh, ineffable, yeah, but aren't you just talking about it? Yes. So you can talk about the ineffable? Yes. Isn't that a bit paradoxical? Yes. All right. So Madhyamaka philosophy seems to have a problem with this paradox. Buddhists, Buddhist scholars, Buddhist philosophers respond in different ways to this paradox in exactly the same way that Western logicians have responded to the liar paradox. But Prima Prashi, it's a real problem of talking about the ineffable. I'm inclined to think that the best way to understand what's going on is to suppose that you really have a contradiction here, that you have to accept that at least some of the things that are ineffable you can talk about. 
um, which takes us back to my meeting with Jay. Um, because once we started to discuss this, we realised that one interest we both had was was in this kind of situation. He was coming at it from his translation of Nagarjuna. I was coming at it from the direction of contemporary logic. But it was a phenomenon that we both thought was very important. So, um, I mean, the, the liar paradox is not about ineffability. But there are paradoxes in the same family as the liar, which are very, very close, where it does look as though you start to talk about things that are ineffable. Mm, these arise in connection with large infinities, where some things are so large that you, you can't describe them. There, there are more things in infinity than you can possibly describe. So there are things in infinity, in the infinite world of set theory, that you can't describe. Yet, I can tell you what some of these things are by, you know, a standard set theoretic construction. This is sometimes called Koenig's paradox. Julius Koenig was a, I think he was a Hungarian logician, mathematician working around the 1920s, maybe 1910. So uh, I don't expect to, your listeners to follow all those details. But the, the, the point I'm making is that they look as though there are paradoxes of ineffability in modern logic as well. So I had some paradox of ineffability. Uh, Jay had what looked like paradox of ineffability. And we thought, well, OK, maybe we should start thinking about these together. So that's where we, we've written a number of papers together over the years. But that was the starting point of our cooperation. And just as a last question about this, I mean, do you, do you see this more as using uh, the ancient Buddhist tradition to find resources that could be used in contemporary logic, for example, work on non-classical logic? Or do you think of it more as using the tools of non-classical logic to understand Nagarjuna, say, which actually is what you do in some of these papers? Yeah. Um, so you have papers where you're sort of talking about the Svavava theory, and then you turn the page and there's lots of symbols and, and uh, sort of lo mathematical logic. Or do you just sync the two kind of go both ways so you can use contemporary logical tools to understand ancient Buddhism and you can use ancient Buddhism to inspire work now? I think it goes both ways. The history of philosophy is really important for contemporary philosophy because there have been lots of great philosophers. Most of them are wrong about most things. That's it's philosophy after all. But they're important points of understanding that all great philosophers have. Whether they're right or wrong about everything, nonetheless, there's so much you can learn from the great philosophers of history because they're smart people and they all had fantastic points of insight so we can in a sense kind of mine the history of philosophy for insights which we can learn anew so how many times in the history of western philosophy have we mined plato or kant or hegel or whatever um, these are rich sources which we can apply and exactly the same goes for the the asian traditions Metaphysical insights of Madhyamaka are really, I think, profound. And if you apply these, then you naturally come up with something like a four-valued logic, maybe even a five-valued logic. And what this shows is that when modern logicians have started to examine these systems, you might think that they were just playing games. You know, you, 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 you squiggle a few symbols, and, you know, it's a bit like chess. Okay, some logicians do that, that's fine. But what these sort of metaphysical insights do is show you that you can 
think of these systems of logic that modern logicians have come up with as anything but playing games. Um, they're really, I mean, I said that any logic has metaphysical underpinnings, okay? What the Buddhists are doing are actually showing us some of the things that could well be metaphysical underpinnings and modern logical systems. So if you if you want to understand the connection between modern logic or some modern logics and metaphysics, hey, you know, the Buddhists and the Jains actually have something very important to teach us about what's going on in the sort of metaphysical underpinnings of these logical systems. So that's the influence one way. Now, the influence goes back the other way because it will be silly to suppose that Nagarjuna had the tools of modern formal logic. It will be silly to suppose that Plato did. But one thing you can do with modern formal logic is um, articulate views in a much more careful way than the thinkers of the time had the ability to do. And it was not that they were stupid, far from it, they just didn't have the tools. So it's not a criticism of Aristotle, they didn't have a microscope. If he'd had a microscope, he'd have made great use of it, right? But we can now know a lot more about biology because we have a microscope. In the same way, we can now understand the views of Plato, of Nagarjuna, uh, much better than they themselves could have done. And that's not because we're smarter than they were. They were probably much smarter than we are. Okay, But it's because we have the appropriate tools, like the kind of logical equivalent of the microscope. So uh, we can go back and we say, okay, so this is what's going on in in the Mulamajamaka Karaka, let us formulate it with all the clarity and the precision of modern logic. Let us see what the import of this idea is. So now we've formulated it more precisely, we can see what follows, we can look at its logical consequences, we can examine the arguments that get put forward for this view to see how good they are. So often we apply modern logic to analyse the Western arguments for the existence of God. Okay? And that's fine. No. Anselm, Descartes didn't know anything about modern logic, but we understand their arguments much better because we've got the tools. Same for Nagarjuna. So uh, I do think that the Enlightenment bo goes both ways. Uh, I'm a great fan of modern philosophy. I'm a great fan of the history of philosophy, East and West. Uh, and one thing I love is trying to take insights from both to help me ex understand the other better. Okay, well, I'll thank Graham Fries one more time very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure, Peter. Thank you for having me. And please join me and Jannard next time as we continue to look at the history of Indian philosophy, which we've just learned can be very important for contemporary philosophy and in its own right here on the history of philosophy in India.